Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Literally probably 15 or 20 minutes before the, um, the finish, we just started seeing the buildings appear in the Hague could see land and then we um you know we, at this stage we had helicopters and boats around us and we had no idea if we were you know about to win you know the race around the world or if we didn't know at that point but we were freaking hoping we were going to on the bow like a few miles in front of us we saw the um the sails of Dongfong and they got in front of us so brutal brutal way to finish like it welcome back to the andy rowe show New Zealander Blair Chuk is one of the most decorated sailors on the planet. He's captured Olympic gold, competed in the gruelling ocean race around the world, and won sport's oldest trophy, the America's Cup, twice. This is the story of competing and succeeding at the highest level, under the most intense pressure and in some of the most harshest conditions. Before we get into the episode, a quick plug to this week's sponsor, Packed Coffee. And if you haven't tried Packed Coffee yet, we'll help you get started with a free V60 kit with your first order of a new packed plan. Go to packedcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T coffee.com, create your flexible coffee subscription, and then enter the code ROW at the checkout. That's R-O-W-E at the checkout. I'll also put all the details in the synopsis to this episode as well, so you can just scroll down on your phone or whatever device you're listening to this on and get yourself that free kit. I can promise you it's great coffee. Just opening the new packet when it comes through the letterbox and smelling the freshness is almost worth the price of the coffee alone. Hope you enjoy the episode. Blair Chuk, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Great to be on with you, Andy. Mate, the first time we met, we were in a club. Well, we'd met before that, like that night at Dom Harvey's house, but we were in a club that evening and you put a silver medal from the 2012 London Olympics around my neck. And I went to the bathroom. So I was, I'm, in, I'm in a urinal and I'm like taking a piss and people are wanting to get their photo taken with me because they <laughs> think I'm Blair Duke. I'm like, go on then. So the first time I met you, I was in the urinal getting my photo taken, people thinking I was an Olympian. Perfect, man. I'm happy to, oh, happy to help out. That's, I guess that's the buzz, especially that was our first Olympics at that time. And when you're in that full week after party mode, um, you're happy to share the love with friends and what, you know, become good friends now, but uh, yeah, friends and, and um, fellow Kiwis as well. Do you still have your medals? Because I was just thinking, mate, this guy's a lunatic. He's going to lose his medal. No chance he's keeping <laughs> that for long. Yeah, amazingly, um, still got all three of them, especially the London and the Rio ones. They definitely uh, saw some good party action. Tokyo, um, not so much with oh, COVID. Being, yeah, COVID, the pandemic there. That was a bit bit more difficult but um yeah the first two definitely saw some some good action and even i think pete and i maybe got ours confused a couple of times to be honest oh, of course because we were like often partying together and stuff but normally in the end we'd um we'd sort of put a little bit of little scratch on one or here or there so you kind of knew whose was who using it as a beer coaster yeah well that happened earlier that first night we met right um i don't know how that came about really but i think we were sitting here like at a it was like a couch similar to this I had my beer, and um, so and the medal was sitting there. I was like, "Oh, there you go, beauty." Just that <laughs> <laughs> was as simple as that. And the story's kind of stayed around, but it's, it's crazy how um, what a medal does to people. Because obviously, you have seen this firsthand, and I'm lucky enough, weirdly, to have seen it firsthand as well. People thinking I was a silver medal winning Olympian. Just how people just lose their shit. When they see it, or they want to touch it, or they want to, do people bite it? Yeah, people always want to bite the medal. And that's annoying. Yeah, I don't you have know. To tell people not to. Well, I think the one in Rio was actually pretty soft, like the gold coating was. If someone bit it, you actually could notice the difference or like see their teeth marked. But no, nah, like when you see, kind of, if you're the one that's got the medal, you see how many people have touched it. Like, you know, like, and you're like, hey, this is the last thing. I, this was even before COVID times. You're like, this is the last thing I'd want to do. So when people have a bite, you kind of just have a bit of a laugh at them. But um, no, it is amazing how, you know, for those few weeks afterwards, especially, you just kind of like go everywhere with the medal and you kind of 
think that it's just, well, I guess you kind of have earned it, but you can just roll around with it and it just seems pretty normal, you know? Yeah, pretty amazing. Because I heard before uh, you got home, I heard after the London Olympics, you heard about these two youngsters, Chuke and Burling, tearing it up in London <laughs> afterwards. How, how good was the party scene? Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty amazing in London. We'd obviously been racing down the coast in Weymouth and had some good parties down there, but then we came up to the main village and then being in London after the Olympics, there's all these little spontaneous parties you know, I've obviously spent a lot of time in London since then. I don't even know where some of these clubs we went to were, but, you know, they were pretty unreal. And we were just, yeah, we were embracing it. We just won a silver medal for our country. We'd worked our butts off for four years. And you're like, shit, I'm going to, you know, enjoy this. And then, yeah, it was a lot to take in, but we just pushed on hard and just, and just partied every night and made the most of it. Did you think, were you partying so hard then because you're like, wow, we're, we've got something here? or Or did you think, was there ever a time when you thought maybe you'd peaked? This was your moment. This was your big moment. Because since then, America's Cup, gold medal, second in the round the world. Like your resume has just, every time I see you, you've gone and done something crazy. Uh, you just won a, the sale GP in the UK. It's, but at that point, did you think, wow, we, this is, this, we've made it? No, I don't, I think it probably is somewhere in, the middle where we, like, we definitely didn't think we'd peak. We're still both young. Pete was 21. I think I was 23. I think it's just back to the point that we'd worked so hard towards that goal for four years. We'd literally just, everything had been thrown at that. And it was just on that point. We hadn't quite won, but a silver medal for that at that point for us was what we kind of deserved. And we sailed an amazing race in Weymouth. And to win that medal, I think it was New Zealand's 100th ever medal at the Olympics. Was, um, All right, man. Yeah, it was Still on, no, it was still on, still on some beer coast uh, bottle caps now, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, just someone sent it to me the other day. It's well, like Spates think, bottle caps. Yeah, Spates. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, because in New Zealand, this is for our UK listeners, in New Zealand, there's like a brand of beer called Spates, and it, it's got a sports question under every bottle cap. So it's a bit of a game in New Zealand. Uh, to get on that bottle cap, you've got to do some, something amazing that gets in the trivia, obviously. But um, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome to you on there. That's a little claim to fame. Let's get back to the partying. How, like every every Olympics, they do. A, there's always a story about how many condoms get brought into the village. Did they need them? Well, that honestly gets. Well, I think it gets blown out of proportion, or like it's. I don't exactly know how that um, how that works. But the Olympic Village is, yeah, it's an amazing place. I think for me, when we first went to that one in in London, you see like the diverse range of people. Like the Olympic tracks, you know. I think me personally, being a sailor, I'm like kind of just somewhere in the middle like I'm not that tall I'm not that short I'm not that and I'm not that skinny I'm just a pretty um, normal body type whereas you don't look at someone and go oh look at him he's built like a sailor yeah then but then you got the marathon runners you know the tiny then you got you know High weight, jumpers, yeah weight lifts everything and it's just like this you've got like the most diverse range of people in, on the planet so yeah that was that was pretty amazing just walking around the food hall and then just seeing like the elation of everyone because you know and, and not sorry not just the elation the emotion some people would just achieve their absolute dreams and some people had them and just all of that whole range is it's a pretty big eye opener a big learning curve and just when you've been so insular in your campaign and your preparation for one event and then to suddenly go into I don't know how many people they're like 15 or 20,000 and people have been on similar journeys but then they all just get put together so they have it like in the village is it a full-on they must have it must be like a full-on hospital and police and everything there for the people that are there, eh? Yeah, so I think in the village they've got, they have got definitely all the all the services, but it's a, it's a lot of people to try and manage, and especially I think during the preparation, you know, everyone's very, I guess, concentrated on their performance. So at first they're probably pretty um, in tune with all their sort of support staff and all of that, but then right after that you you got all these athletes and, and support staff kind of partying and all of that so you have to deal with all so it's a lot for each team in each country to kind of deal with and, and prepare for all of that stuff it's a massive logistical operation yeah, eh? is, yeah. let's shift forward four years because you you won the gold you won pretty much everything leading up to the games in rio and then you get to rio again and you're dominating you won you won the gold like before even the last yeah you, you race had, or two to go yeah you had two races to go it's crazy yeah did you guys do anything different there? It's like how much of it, because you know how everyone talks about the boat in America's Cup, how much of it was the boat? Because you're dominating by that much. Like, 
had you guys just got used to the boat or did you guys have a better boat? Was there any sort of technical advantages you had? Yeah, so the boat we sail at the Olympic Games when it's just Ped and I in the 49er, that's a, what we call like a one-design boat or a one-manufacture boat. So it's all the same boat, the sails are the same, the mast are the same. Um, there's little differences between, as, as you get with anything when you manufacture something, there's um, small variances. You're trying to exploit those to your advantage and, and use them to hopefully get a bit, bit of a speed edge. But uh, I think that run into Rio on the back you know of what we achieved in london we kind of came back and said no we want to go again and try and stand on on top of the you know beat those australians yeah beat the aussies firstly and um and then that campaign we put together where we just yeah we never knew we'd go however many regattas it was unbeaten but it was all just geared towards rio and being the best prepared we could and yeah, I think what was so pleasing there is that we put together probably one of our best ever regattas and to do that when it matters most is, you know, not many people or athletes get to do that. Quite often at the Olympics or a big event, the person that wins is the one that makes the least mistakes or the people kind of drop themselves out of contention before they even start because they you know, haven't been prepared or they get sort of flustered by the big event. But no, we managed to sail our best ever regatta and I guess that culminated in that winning by a couple of races yeah man you smashed it you've obviously got an awesome partnership with Peter Burling well how did that come about for a start we first teamed up like 14 years ago now or something yeah so um just after the 2008 Olympics he he'd gone there as a youngster like he was 17 he went on in a different boat in the 470 class and came back and he was keen to get into the skiff which is the boat the 49 and now that we've spent the majority of our careers and he was keen to sail there and I'd sailed boats similar to that so he sort of asked me to team up and we just gave it a crack for literally a few months and wanted to see how it was going and how the partnership was working and we were working well together we we're coming at it from quite different backgrounds I guess I think having two sort of unique skill sets or diverse skill sets when you're into any partnership like that it helps out so yeah once we knew was we had the foundation we um, set the sights on on London and, and then just went full steam from there. He's the boss, eh? No. <laughs> I'm the boss. He's Batman and you're Robin, eh? No. no, I think that's what's pretty awesome on that, especially in the 49er. It's, you know, everything was even and we just both, you got two guys going absolutely 100% into something and, you know, your mates going full steam, you got full trust there. Do you ever, is there any imposter syndrome at all when it comes to how much do you back your ability and know that you're at that level? There must be times where you're like, shit, I'll fucking fluke this a little bit or is it like no i've grown up sailing i've done the miles on the water i am this good yeah it's it's interesting i think different sports people approach approach it differently and you can get someone who looks on the outside to be the kind of same as as another person and actually one's gone into it you know as a sort of confidence athlete where they need that confidence and knowing that they're, they're the best um to to uh, I guess perform how they at the ability they can um, for me personally I'm probably more on the other side where I kind of just always want to be better and I don't actually really think necessarily where or at the level where I'm at and I kind of just always strive to to be better and kind of have everything ticked off to be as best prepared as I can and then hopefully the results kind of do the talking from there but yeah I think that's an interesting sort of I've heard someone talking about that recently and I've kind of made me think about you know I had never actually thought about it too much but yeah I think even Pete and I approach events in slightly different ways yeah it's interesting isn't it because like I feel I don't know if the rest of New Zealand would feel like this or the rest of the sailing community feels like this but I feel like when you two are lining up man I'm pretty I'm pretty confident like I'm pretty confident you guys are gonna win whatever race you guys are gonna be or whatever regatta it's a surprise almost when you don't mm-hmm. Is there somewhere in you where you kind of feel like that as well? Or is there, I don't want to call it arrogance, because it, but to be a professional sportsman, to be successful, you have to have a confidence and belief that you can win it. Yeah, I think there's a big difference from the public or, you know, even you, a mate, kind of knowing um, from the outside, kind of not necessarily knowing all the depths as to what the preparation's gone into something. So if we've prepared for something like the Rio Olympics where preparation's gone well, not just the last week or two, but for four years before that, you know, like there's 
things we tick off and want to have absolutely nailed before we go into an event. If we go into an event with all that done, that does give us a lot of confidence. You know, in Sale GP the last year where we've been this new team, everyone expects us to get in there and win straight away. Yeah, but, what's been going on, mate? Yeah, well, we got there finally in Plymouth the other week, which was uh, which was pretty awesome. But no, that's, you know, like as a team, we go in there and, you know, Pete and I, but the whole team know that we haven't ticked off all areas, you know, we want to. And that's a lot down to the fact that we're, limited in the time we can spend in the boat and you know, we had the Olympics last year which were obviously a big distraction and made it more difficult uh, in GP. but that from the outside people kind of see that as the same as us in the 49er but we know actually the level of preparation into each event's vastly mm. different so a lot of high performance situations are you know, not just in sport put a real emphasis on a robust debrief how robust do you and Pete get? Like, how honest can you get without crossing the line to be having a crack at someone else's work, I guess? Yeah, um, awesome question. I think it's probably one of our strengths, I think, um, and has been right from the start, is that ability to openly discuss and break down all aspects of performance to try and figure out where the, I guess, the key parts are and what, you know, firstly what you're doing well, because you can't you don't want to forget those parts, but then obviously where the where the gaps are, and um, we've been fortunate to have some really good people around us that have helped us out with that process over the years. Namely, a guy Dave Slyfield actually, who's been involved with us as a performance analyst right from 2009 or 2010 with all of our Olympic stuff, and then now with CLGP as well. So he's helped with a lot of that structure. But I think Pete and I both personally as well come with kind of that um, mentality that you. You want to get better as people, as sailors, and and the debrief process is such an important part of that. Um, and now with the rest of the GP team, we got Andy, Josh, and and the rest of them. The debriefs are awesome. Man. Is that how people at that level get to that level? Do you think because they're not too precious on feedback? Yeah, I think so. You have to have that willingness to learn and and to improve, and your peers around you are the best ones to do that because everyone's. Now it gets literally, um, excuse the pun, in the same boat. So it's certainly having that just openness to to learn is, I, I think, the the number one thing. And then if you've got that, it's, if you haven't got that, um, if you look at the other one, you haven't got someone in your team that's got that uh, openness and that eager, eagerness to learn, then you're probably in a pretty difficult spot. Yeah, you can't be too sensitive, eh? Nah. That's why I wouldn't make it. If you're critiquing me on something, I'm not hearing it. Yeah, you're coming straight back at it, just firing straight back. <laughs> well, what, what are you saying that? Mate, this, is saying what, that? This, is where, this is where you're going wrong, though, mate. <laughs> on the boat, do you ever get like, are you ever like giving it to each other to like pick stuff, pick it up, mate? Come on. you. No, I'd, not too much in the sailing environment. Sometimes with predominantly, there's not so much of a physical attribute to controlling the boat. You'll probably hear if you listen to the comms closely like on a sail GP boat there's quite often from me to the guys grinding up the front there's a there's a little bit around digging in at certain times when because they're the ones um, producing uh, the power to the athletes gr- yeah congrats yeah not athletes yeah not me so, sorry yeah. mate I've, I've told you you're not an athlete and you're robbing to <laughs> yeah, Batman today, yeah, yeah. So sorry about that um so yeah they're producing the power to for me to be able to control the, the wing sail so quite often you'll hear comms back that way but then between the rest of us there's a time and a place to bring something up or if you think someone can do something better, if, if that's going to, if you can mention something at the right time which is going to change the outcome of that race, then absolutely you'd do it. But if it's something that someone's not doing and it's not really going to change that race, you'll um, bring it up afterwards. So I think we're pretty lucky that the group we got, we've sailed a lot together so you, you know each other and know when, when those right times are. We'll switch it up now. We'll, um, let's go to the Around the World race. What, what's it called these days? It was bloody Whitbread back in the day, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was Whitbread when it first started, then it changed to the Volvo Ocean Race when I did it, or from 2000 to that last edition in 2017, 2018, and now it's just the Ocean Race. So gives a gist on like just how hard an event that is and how long it is and the, just the, just a the grind. Yeah, so the Ocean Race as it is now is a fully crewed round-the-world race. Um, so it's not non-stop, but you... You do some pretty big legs. I think the whole race around the world's made up about eight or nine different stops. Um, starts in in Europe, starts in the Mediterranean, and finishes uh, back in Europe. So great place to start. You'd yeah, to finish there though, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, we finished in the Hague in um, in Holland, there, and that was pretty epic, actually. It's just 
an awesome combination between straight out sailing race and still this huge sense of adventure because you're sailing between continents across some of the roughest oceans in the world some of the most isolated parts of the world so you're going to places on the planet that no one no humans been before so you're getting these amazing experiences all well trying to get your boat around the world faster than someone else so yeah it was something i wanted to do that race right since i was a a kid even before we went to the olympics or went Mm-hmm. did the america's cup i'd always wanted to do the around the world race so. when you were when you were 11 12 or 11 you sailed from new zealand to fiji yeah yeah exactly yeah did that blue water crossing so that was that was an awesome experience so that first night when you get out off the coast and wake up in the morning or whatever and there's just no land to be seen there's a few seabirds around and yeah it's, it makes me sick you, lo- you love it though yeah it's the place it. i'm most comfortable but to finally do the ocean race after being a professional sailor for 15 years or something was was awesome so was it 11 legs 45,000 miles and you're out there for three weeks at a time yeah that's yeah 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 pretty grueling grueling race what's the shift rotation like how much you're sleeping how what talk me through that the living situation it's like nine nine people on board the boat would do four hours on four hours uh off so on your four hours on you're up on deck with four of you pretty much and so we had eight people in the watch system and then our navigators sat out of the watch system he kind of just did his own program with around all the weather forecasts and whatnot when you're on your off watch you're you're not um sleeping that whole four hours so you obviously have food and and get sort of cleaned up and get changed and before you can get to sleep but even the bigger thing that sort of limits you from getting getting sleep is if the boat needs to do a maneuver or so if you're tacking or jibing or doing a sail change, you need to get all the crew from downstairs up. No, you don't. Yeah. Oh, so you could be half an hour, like just not at all, or you could be ha- you could be any time through and they could still wake you up. Yeah, so you could literally have just got out of your wet weather gear and your thermals jumping in your, in your sleeping bag, already just done four hours on or whatever without sleeping, and then you're just not sail change or, or maneuver and then get changed again, go do that come back down and you might only have an hour or two left on your on your off watch at that point yeah there's certainly times where you you might end up having a bit of a bad run and you might go 18 or 24 hours without any sleep so it gets pretty difficult not for me eh? yeah i'm not i'm not good on no sleep like, <laughs> yeah no sleep or like low amounts of food i am a piece of shit like this i like the idea of doing what you're doing i think it's like I even looked at, there was like an opportunity to be a media person on one of the boats. I was like, oh yeah, that's yeah. That's, that's awesome. And then you hear about the amount of sleep that you get. What, you're just eating freeze-dried food the whole yeah, time? Yeah, rehydrated food the whole time. Yuck. The sleep deprivation's one part of it, but it's just it's just like how relentless the conditions are when, you know, it's not always cold. It can be really hot too, like when you're mm. going across the equator and in those conditions, it's super humid and hot. There's no air conditioning. You know. Nah, <laughs> so you're struggling to sleep in the heat. Probably people in the UK that last... <laughs> imagine the whinging yeah it's um how it's been over the summer over here is probably you know how it is times 10 when you're in the, going across the equator or in the southern ocean it's relentlessly cold just bitterly cold and and wet and gray and so that makes it challenging but then the sailing itself people probably sitting there going oh that sounds terrible but the sailing itself epic like you're literally on this boat going downwind for days and days like you know it's just so that's epic you don't yeah. have to turn around you're just going one way what about the, the, the Southern Ocean? People have a fear idea it's cold down there. But people outside of that may not really understand the gravity of that situation when you're sailing a yacht by yourself, well, I mean, as a team. Talk me through that. Just what's it like to sail through there? How big are the waves? Like, Give me all the details. Describe what it's like sailing through the Southern Ocean. You can get big waves and big winds anywhere around the world. You only need a certain storm to be coming through your area and you'll get big waves and wind but i guess what's different about the southern ocean is that it's just continually like that it's that's where all the storms come through so you get down into the roaring 40s when you're south of new zealand or towards the bottom of new zealand and what are they calling ferocious 50s and then the, i don't even know what the 60s are but that's, yeah <laughs> you don't want to get down there but when you get down to those latitudes it's just constant storms coming through yeah so for our, our leg from new zealand around around cape horn we were you know i think it took us about 12 days to get to cape horn and it was proper windy the whole time it was above 30 knots of wind the whole time anywhere between 30 and 60 knots of wind huge waves gray it's a wild place like there's 
you go past the place in the middle of the Southern Ocean, Point Nemo, so you're actually closer at Point Nemo to the people on the International Space Station than you are any other human on the um, planet. So what? Yeah, at that point you you feel pretty um, small, to be honest. I bet you do. Yeah, and the boat's just getting battered, right? Yeah, the boat's getting battered. You you got your nine people on your boat. You've got the people you're racing against. Like the people you're racing against, are by far the closest ones and they're the ones you'd look out to if, if anything um goes bad because that's they're the ones that could assist yeah humans aren't really built to be down there so nah. it's um it's pretty yeah. awesome something did go wrong there when you were out there eh? yeah yeah it did unfortunately um it wasn't on our boat it was on the it was called scallywag so the boat from based out of hong kong predominantly actually an aussie crew yeah, some of our good mates were on that boat and uh, unfortunately on the leg from New Zealand to Brazil, they lost a man overboard in the middle of the Southern Ocean and yeah, unfortunately they weren't able to get back and, and get fish or John Fisher. So yeah, absolutely brutal for all of them on board, but obviously Fisher's family and everyone yeah, close to him, but you know, it really rocked the whole, the whole race. Because people, when they hear that someone's gone overboard, their immediate question will be, why don't you go and pick them up? It's not that easy obviously yeah but it, it must be almost impossible like i mean they we've just talked about for the last yeah. five minutes the conditions down. hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Down there and hopefully, you know, people might have a, images in their head as to what those conditions would be like, but it's really easy to go downwind, but to try and turn the boat around and get back upwind. Um, so obviously, as you, if you would fall off, that's where you end up. It's really challenging. Even yeah. for the best sailors, even in for the, the world. Be- yeah, like and quite often equipment. you're you're sailing the boat because of the watch system, and then like we talked about with the maneuvers to do a maneuver or turn the boat in a different direction, you kind of need everyone on deck and everyone ready to go. Mm-hmm. And even then, to get the boat back up when would be difficult. But if you're sailing at a reduced crew, like with three or four people on deck and just in your watch, which is how we would sail the boats down there, so that you're up, the rest of the crew are sleeping, it's fine for going in a straight line. But as soon as you try and turn around, you can't do it. So. Yeah, obviously, they, as when we heard the news on board our boat, it was probably one of the rougher mornings on the whole I race. Bet it was, and yeah. um, and we'd we'd just been through a wild night ourselves. We and you know, it was challenging, challenging. And when the news came through, just just remember thinking, shit, you know. Although they were looking for him at that stage, you knew that the chances were very, you know, slim to try and get back to him. And, and then if if they did get back to him, that you know, for him to still be alive, so. Yeah, after another five hours or something, we got the news that they'd sort of cooled off the search and they were making their way to Chile. Obviously, that's the worst situation. How much does that situation play on your head outside of that when you're you're thinking of the very real possibility that you could get washed overboard or like something where a boom could hit you? Mm-hmm. It's a reality of what is quite possible down there. How often are you... Is that playing on your mind when you're walking around the boat? I mean, the whole time around the world, you kind of have to have the, and, you know, fish would have it as well, absolutely. You have to have the mentality that if your boat's your safe place and if you end up off the boat, then you're really in, in risk of, of not making it. So that's kind of the mentality you have with any of the jobs you do on the boat, whether you're up, up on the bow doing a, a sail change or you're, you know, at the back, you just inside those life ring, or the lifelines as you're, as your safe spot and obviously as the conditions get worse or, and there's more water coming over the deck the the risks get higher but you yeah you just have to take that in each time you're making a decision and I'm just trying 
clip on when you can and, and mm-hmm. stay connected to the boat and yeah just take it take a second longer longer for things but you know i think that was probably one of the, the hardest parts about the terrible uh acts, you know what happened to, to fish is that for all of us out there we kind of knew of those risks and that's how you're, you're living that every day um, but then for all of our friends and family back home you know suddenly that becomes very real for them the mental skills for a race like this do you have any thing that prepares you for that is there any you just read a book about read Peter Blake's book or, or some or if you, you know read someone's book that's done it or do you have a psychologist that tells you how to deal with situations because you're gonna have a whole variety of different situations because it's not just the Southern Oceans it's the doldrums as well and correct me if I'm wrong the doldrums are where you had a big area of absolutely no wind and a lot of heat yeah yeah I mean the there's one of the doldrums crossing when we crossed the equator. We had three or four days where we didn't, basically didn't travel. You can't put your engine on. Obviously, it's a race, so you, there's no wind. It was hot, hot. Like, it was probably 40 degrees during the day, and the water temperature was like 30 degrees. No. Um, so it was just like you couldn't even think about jumping in to cool off. That, was, that would be a dumb idea. But all those things are kind of like you can't really prepare for it until you're, you're doing it, and you don't. The other thing is you don't really know how different people on the boat are going to react in, in different yeah. sort of situations i think that was probably one of the biggest learnings for me was how different people on the boat when they either get tired or hungry or the conditions get to the extremes how they you know some people shut down some people take more of a leadership role you know it just it's what do you do what do you do when you're tired and hungry i think i try and um lift the people around you know like if i'm tired and hungry that probably means or if i'm finding it challenging then I'm, you know know the rest of the team probably finding it pretty challenging as, as well so try and keep the the mood upbeat and um i think we'd balance each other out well because i'm yeah. completely opposite yeah suck the life out of it it's a good way there's potentially a couple of people that did that you know but that's did you? yeah but then they still they put in and the other you know there's still is there a bit of banter about you mate you're sucking the life out of it. you're ruining the experience mate Come yeah on, like i up, remember here's a here's a dried carrot yeah, even Jabi, our skipper, who's an absolute legend, sometimes the conditions were crap and you'd just be going, this is shit, you know? And then I would just, we would sort of have a bit of banter that, you know, yeah. I'd be loving it or whatever. And that was, I guess, us being like that and having that um, different opinion kind of got us through. Can you, when there's no win for a few days, can you play cards or do anything? Is there, any, is there anything you can do to pass the time? Not, you try and just catch up on sleep, to be honest. I mean, you know at some point you're going to get pushed again. So if it's not that day, it'll be the day after or the day after that. So, you you know, across the doldrums or when the conditions are calmer, as, as long as it's not too hot, it's probably the time you can get closer to your four hours um, sleep in your off watch. So you can actually potentially, in your 24-hour stint, you can go close to you might sleep 10 hours or something, which is pretty unheard of. There's times to share some stories with your, your teammates. And at times like that, you, there might be a few of you right up on the bow because you're trying to keep the weight as far forward as you can for the speed of the boat. And you, you're in this like, you know, as we've talked about before, the most isolated part of the world. You know, if you're in the doldrums, you're in a place where there's thunderstorms growing like in front of your eyes. What? And these clouds just, you know, a cloud will grow out of nothing to like this huge mushroom-shaped thunderstorm within you know, a couple of hours and you'll kind of watch the whole thing form and then and then start raining and disperse the wind. So how good would the rain be then? Eh? Yeah, fresh rain. You're gonna tell rain, me it's yeah. seventy degree heat rain or something. Yeah. Like no, nah, no, nah, the rain's good. And like you take it obviously everything's kind of salty on the boat normally, so you, you take the rain. It's absolutely catch some fresh water. Do you ever hallucinate when you're out there in that kind of heat? So, no, you don't hallucinate with that. You you obviously don't want to get to that stage. At times it gets a bit challenged, not hallucinating, but in the real dark nights, and obviously it's dark every night, but there's a real variance um, when you're at, on the sea between like a, a moonlit night, like clear skies versus like a no moon, cloudy. So it can be, if a no moon, cloudy is like pitch, pitch black at and you can't see the difference in the horizon, so the waves to the sky kind of look exactly the same. Oh! And you're trying to sail a boat that you basically just trying to feel it under your feet. You've obviously got the instruments showing you where you're going and the angle to the wind and the boat speed and that sort of thing, but you you really struggle with all your your senses. So that's challenging. You're not hallucinating, but at times you're kind of getting a little bit spaced out. As to can't put like a spotlight out. Nah, you're trying to keep it. All the lights on the boat are, are red lights at that time, and, and trying to be as dim as possible. So you give your eyes the best chance to adjust to the gotcha. night. So yeah, if someone and it happens sometimes, but 
like these lights you got here, someone will pop their head up from the cabin or something with one of their, like, you know, they've been cooking up some dinner and they'll have their headlight on and you're like trying to drive the boat. You know, that'll set you wrong for a few minutes or something, you know. So it's always, <laughs> that happens a bit. But um, yeah, in general, the rules that you just always got red spotlight on. Sorry about the interruption. We'll be back to Blair in just a moment. But coming up next week, we've got former Indy 500 Rookie of the Year, Randy Lanier. Randy funded his car racing career by importing marijuana from Colombia to the United States. Yeah, I saw the plane fly over and land on like a little grassy runway. My crew thought they were just tourists, but something in my gut didn't like it. And we pulled anchor and went back to the Falmouth Harbor where I was keeping my vessel. Once I got inside the bay, they blockaded the, the inlet with their big Navy vessel, about a 90-foot PT boat. And I couldn't get out. I'm, my vessel's stuck inside the bay. And I go, hell no. I'm up in the flybridge looking around. I see this vessel, this great 90-foot PT boat. And I, I said, turn the boat around and head back out to the ocean. Well, as soon as we turned around and started hitting out the inlet, the PT boat blocked the inlet and wasn't letting us out. So I knew they was there for me. Then I launched my little, little skiff that I had on a winch and on the bow of my boat. And got in that and drove to a other part of the island and tied up on a dock and ran down a dirt road. And That's coming up next week. Now back to Blair Chuk. When you're in some of these remote places, you must see some pretty amazing wildlife and birds. and Some of the wildlife in the, in the race were some of the best parts. And again, in, in the Southern Ocean, both the Pacific um, Southern and the Indian Southern Oceans, some of the al- albatross and different seabirds you saw were... Um, yeah, it was phenomenal, really. So albatross is really well known in New Zealand. I've got no idea if it's well known the rest of the world. I'm not sure. It might yeah, be. Yeah, there's like... People might know about it. I think it, there's 19 or 20 different um, albatross the massive, species. They're massive, Yeah, like they're up to three and a half meter wingspans for the biggest albatross. And yeah, when you see them, when you're like, as we've talked about so much, we're there getting smashed by waves, like the sailing's tough, you're cold, and then there's just an albatross... You know, soaring above you, kind of look, making it look so easy. That was some of the, the coolest parts of the race. Like we're there doing that. You know that the albatrosses come from, you know, as well for us in New Zealand, they've come from some of our outer islands, and they've they've come from home. So I guess it does give you that connection and that I don't know what it is. It's kind of a spiritual, a spiritual connection and and a boost, I think. So there's some parts of the ocean where it's just nothing. It's not dead, but it's it's even before. Pre-human times, there would be parts of the ocean that would be a lot more prolific and have more uh, right. life and a, a more, uh, I guess, a broader ecosystem than in other parts. And that's kind of to do with the currents and and how that all that all works. And but in, anyway, even even then, we should have seen more um, really? life than, than what we did. So that was that was part of you know. Now we've founded Live Ocean, and, and a lot of that was born out of doing the race and and that's one of the points but then some of the other points of doing the race was just that I guess seeing the power of sport and how that could connect to people and the ocean race did a, a great job during that time of connecting some really key messaging and using sport to do that it's a hard thing though isn't it like telling people the ocean's dying like making people give a shit like you, it's a hard thing to do but live ocean like is it's the charity that you guys have founded you guys are really workshopped today like you've really thought about it yeah, yeah. So we spent a a year researching basically after doing that race end of mid twenty eighteen to the end of twenty nineteen. Um we started with a pretty blank sheet of paper and, and just wanted to use the platform we had or we have in sport to connect people to the to the ocean and, and turn it around really, change the directory of wh- where it's heading. Um, and that was how we kind of entered into it, and, and since then we've learned a lot more. That's you know coming up four years ago since we started the, our journey into it. You know, at that stage we had that passion, and we knew that we wanted to use our platform. But now we've sort of seen that the science is pretty clear that the oceans at a real tipping point. Also, seen that the science shows how connected the climate crisis is to the ocean, and and what a, such a major role that's going to play in, in trying to um, change the trajectory and, and trying to connect people to the ocean because as we talked about today, mm. so much of it's out beyond the horizon and, and or below the surface where people can't see the issues. And if, as we know, if you can't if you can't see something or you can't connect to it, that's a, then it's then it's hard to make people care. So, is Live Ocean? If you go onto the website, does it give you any information on that? Kind yeah. Of so, if 
Yeah, yeah, it's a, absolutely. So at liveocean.com, it's kind of got all of that and it shows the connection between land and, ah. and ocean and, and it shows the science projects that we back and it shows the different technology. Gotcha. And then, so you can have a look on there. And then so that's what I need. You need to look on there and you'll get some yeah. inspiration of what you yeah, can Yeah, that, that's what I need. I need someone to say... Give me something really, really like black and white. Yeah, it's not just what gets harvested from the ocean as well. It's what we put into it, not just rubbish, but, you know, the, obviously the sedimentation or, or um, runoff from land that really smothers a lot of the inner reefs and, and things like that. So that plays a role in it. So if you, it's just, there's so many different things that show where the land's connected to the ocean. And just for that, for the ocean to actually even be part of, you know, if we're having the climate conversation, for, that to be on someone's vocabulary is um, that would be a huge step forward. I think we haven't got much more time, but I do want to talk about the America's Cup. It's funny, isn't it? Because like America's Cup's massive in New Zealand. I don't know how you see it, but I guess like it's really hard to get breakthrough in those established countries where football. It's very hard to get a breakthrough as far as like yes, people sail in Great Britain, but it's not plastered over the news when the America's Cup's coming up. Whereas in New Zealand, the lead-up to the America's Cup, it's a big story. How do you kind of see where the America's Cup is now and where, where it's sort of going? And Yeah, well, I think you summed up pretty well and that sailing still, although it's my profession now and what my life predominantly revolves around, it's still in, around the world, it's still a pretty niche sport and the, the numbers that compete in sailing are, are still pretty low on the on the whole but also there's there are still a lot of people that got connection to the ocean or you know through their ancestors or through friends or family or what they do and, and then when it gets to the professional level maybe there's a little bit more of a disconnect but yeah I think you know with what the America's Cup's done over the years you know obviously it's the oldest trophy in sport and in more recent years with the change to foiling um, the boats have become pretty exciting and I've been pretty lucky to be you know, at the forefront of that as far as an athlete and getting to sail those boats. Do you have any nostalgia, though, towards the old boats? Because no. I love the old spinnakers going up, oh. and I loved, it. I loved it when you could see a change in the lead just sort of slowly happening over 10 minutes. Yeah. Whereas, like, the America's Cup now, awesome, but different sport almost, eh? Yeah. No, it is a, it is different, and I probably didn't – I came out of dinghies and, and then into – sailing fast boats really right. so I didn't, didn't experience that but I mean I yeah I know what a spinnaker is there well I know young buck <laughs> yeah young buck <laughs> wouldn't even know tailing from the the bow <laughs> no no I uh I think sailing's got a really unique opportunity now to to take it to the next level and you know what's happening at Sail GP um this new league that we're lucky to be part of and um you know, that's never been done before in sailing where you've got boats sailing at the highest level. So, you know, boats doing close to 100 kilometers an hour. It's like a Formula One type yeah. competition for sailing. Yeah. You've got these boats that are just like tweaked out, right? Yeah, that super fast boats. And 100 kilometers an hour, did you say? Yeah. Are they foiling? Yeah, foiling, yeah. Foiling catamarans, yeah. So, and I, what's unique about that? I mean, boats have gone that fast for the last five years but what's different about sail gp is that it's um there's nine or ten boats on the start line and then we're all you know we're racing at 11 different stops around the world i think that's where that's where it's a unique sailing sort of package which hasn't hasn't it hasn't had that combination before really where everyone's sailing the same boat the boats are going super fast and you're sailing on a regular basis so that as a say a property i guess has got the potential to really take sailing to the next level i know you would have been asked this many a time but i've still never been able to wrap my head around how like the boats go faster than the wind yeah i mean the boats now go three or four times faster than the than the wind so in um in 10 knots of wind you can you could do close to 40 knots so um what is it in in 20 kilometers of wind you do 80 80 odd um so you can go four times as fast as the wind. Yeah, in old sailing, when you had your spinnakers, you would go upwind and you'd be going into the wind and you kind of tack into the wind and you have to go to angle. Then when you go downwind, you'd put up the big spinnaker and you basically catch the wind and the wind speed is going faster than what the boat's going. Um, and you're just trying to catch as much as it, of it as you can and kind of drag you downwind. Now, we don't, um, 
you don't try and catch the wind. You basically just keep the sh- sails sheeted on firmly and you're essentially going upwind the whole way around the racetrack. So as you start going faster, then the wind bends and comes further forward. So, okay, I got one for you because you're looking at me blankly. No, I'm if, you're going, if you're going in your car... There's, there's a picture running around in my head. If it's you're, like a if hamster you, on a wheel. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, get your picture into your car. So... If you're in, if you're in your car, yeah, and you're you're stationary. Oh yeah, I like where this is going. Okay, if you're stationary in your car and pretend there's no buildings around, so you can feel exactly where the wind's coming from, you will you'll feel the wind from a, a certain direction. Yeah, and say if it's blowing thirty kilometers at a given angle, you'll feel thirty kilometers yeah. in your face. Then as if you start driving straight into that wind, then your good. speed your speed plus that that uh, wind speed will kind of equal the total wind speed that you feel over your on your face, which is what we call apparent wind speed. So right. basically the same principles work in when we're going around the racetrack. So if you were going straight away from the wind at the same speed as what the wind was blowing into you, you would feel no wind on your, your face. And then as you get to a greater speed than what the wind... So if, you st- if the wind's still blowing 30 kilometers, you're going directly away from it. 30 kilometers you'd feel no wind and then if you go 35 kilometers you'd suddenly start feeling how many in your face oh yeah i get it so if you went 35 kilometers then you start feeling more yes but you'd only start feeling five Five kilometers yeah so you'd feel the difference between what it was and (sighs) so the same thing happens is that the faster you go the more the wind comes in front of you and then you keep going the wind speed goes up and you keep going faster and faster so do you go faster upwind or downwind uh, you go slightly faster downwind, but not by much now. No, you did a good job of that. Talking about apparent wind is, is pretty difficult, but I think comparing it to the cars, if I take it to yeah. the extreme, if you're going 100 kilometers in your car, it's very rare that the wind's blowing unless you're driving in a hurricane. So pretty much you always, if you put your hand out the window, it always feel like the car, uh, the wind's coming from in front of you. Do you think you'll do another round-the-world race? Yeah. No, I think both Pete and I would really like to at some point. Because you almost won, the, won it when you last went on, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, tell me that yarn. That's a great yarn. Yeah, well, it's it was, not a great yarn for you, but it's a great yarn. Well, well we talked a lot about the um, you know, the times in the Southern Ocean, and well, we didn't actually talk about how we went too much in the race. But you were with Matt Free, right? Yeah, Matt Free's Spanish team. So we got to the end of the race, which was up here in Europe. We are actually going from the last leg from Gothenburg to The Hague, and we were... In Gothenburg, we were in a position where there was a three-way tie, and it was basically the the winner of that last leg to the Hague was the winner of the race. Uh, so, so after forty-five thousand, yeah, after forty-five thousand kilometers, we'd actually been leading probably for about two-thirds of the race. So we were probably the front runners, along with um, Dong Fong and the Chinese entry, and then Pete's team on Brunel, that Dutch entry, actually were they'd done a good comeback on the second half of the race, and they'd got themselves to level pegging as well. But yeah, so after what nine months, it came down to this last leg, and we sailed a pretty a pretty good leg, and approaching the finish in um, the Hague, probably about ten hours to run or something. They they have what they call a, a TSS, which is a traffic separation system. I think it's for so much ship traffic in Europe, and around here they have just basically like motorway lanes on the ocean. And when we're racing there. You can sail down them, but it gets a little bit complicated in a race. So they just basically put that whole um, the TSS as an exclusion zone. Yeah, it's a digital kind of island. You can't you can't go through there. So we were basically the Hague was on one side of that, and we were on the other side. And we knew this before the race that we'd have to make a decision whether we went on the northern side of that TSS, closer to England, and then down into into Holland, or if we went down the Danish coast across the top of Germany and then into Holland. So um, we were winning the leg at the time. Pete's team, Brunel, were quite close to us. How far do you reckon you were winning? By Not that much. It was a, an hour? Or? Uh, like probably at that stage, probably like half an hour. So we were probably a, a few kilometers in front. Um, but like at that stage, it's, it's a decent lead. Like all the boats are going very similar speed, but it was, we'd sailed a good leg. We made the call to go to the north of that zone towards England, and then Pete's team came with us, and then the Chinese team who um, were trailing us, obviously at that point, if they had followed us, we would have beaten them. So they made the call, which was a roll good one. Dice. Yeah, roll the dice. They went along the 
the German coast and for two thirds of that last 10 or 12 hours we were it was looking like our side was going to win and just as we were had kind of gone around the last part of the zone we had to miss the wind kind of shifted from where it was going to be and we were meant to kind of be on a on a reach into the into the finish and they were meant to be downwind the wind was shifted so that it was the opposite and they had the the better angle into the finish and literally probably 15 or 20 minutes before the um the finish we just started seeing the buildings appear in the Hague could see land and then we um you know we, at this stage we had helicopters and boats around us and we had no idea if we were you know about to win you know the race around the world or if we didn't know at that point but we were freaking hoping we were going to on the bow like a few miles in front of us we saw the um the sails of dong fong and they got in front of us so brutal brutal way to finish like it so that was that was pretty um tough pill to to swallow for the team but um i guess once all the dust settled it was still an amazing experience and that was probably the first time in my sporting career where i'd taken like a big loss or when you you know when you especially when you come so close so it was um yeah it was pretty pretty difficult what did you do when you got in support like did you was there any kind of celebration or you just spent you just go straight to bed no we had all our like friends and family there and stuff so we yeah we still celebrated but a short leg like that was only three or four days, so you pretty much don't sleep very much. Maybe mm. sleep like an hour or two the whole time in three days. So you get there and you're like running on nothing, right? So you um, motions are running pretty high. And um, oh yeah, yeah. So it was pretty. Yeah, you definitely don't want me on the boat. Yeah, <laughs> no. Even us, there's a few tears and tears of joy, tears of sadness, and um, yeah, kind of that reflection and that there's yeah a lot going on. But what's your body like after that? Oh, you, your hands are pretty fucked. Are they? Yeah. So they could just, I mean, mine are pretty good now, but they just get like to a situation where they're like proper peeling and raw. And yeah, because I think I, I think I'm even like seeing your face on the TV and just thinking like you're, you, you're, you're pretty chapped up, mate. Like yeah. Your, 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 your nose and your lips. Yeah, it's not good for you. In general, you're, you're not sleeping, eating pretty crappy food. You're out in the elements. <laughs> like it's like all the. Yeah. Yeah, like a lot shitting of, over the edge of the boat. Yeah, I got a lot of grey here now, and it's probably a lot due to that. Race. So the hands recover, or like, yeah, they, is it sore? Or? No, they're pretty good now. But at the time, it's um, yeah, it's super sore. It's just it's like if you've been in a spa pool too long, and they get all like soft, and and then all of a sudden you um, get wrinkled up. Yeah, and then you got to like go use ropes, and and then you jump in your bunk, and they dry out for a couple of hours, and then all of a sudden you um, use them again. So it's pretty sore all right mate well you've got a plane to catch so we better wrap it up yeah well, that's a good way to end it but yeah thanks well, andy well, well thanks very much for coming on just quickly again it's liveocean.com liveocean.com get on there um learn about the ocean it plays a such a big role in in life on, does. On, on this planet so um get amongst thanks very much for coming on mate thanks for having me mate and thank you again for listening let me know your thoughts on the interview and if you have any suggestions for guests that you'd like to hear on the show just feel free to hit me up on Insta or Twitter. DM me? Just slide into my DMs. (laughs) 